0: had the opportunity to hear multiple ways in which Methodism has been a blessing, not just to Methodists, but to the world. And perhaps by identifying some of the things that have been so distinctive and crucial to who we are and the way we work in the world, it might help us to stay centered on who God is calling us to be and what is really vital, what is really foundational In our church, our denomination, our identity as those people called Methodists. And we have explored our unique understanding of the movement of God's grace that we encounter in prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace. We have talked about the fact that Methodists have always understood themselves to have a purpose in the world. That our faith is not just for us, but it is to bless others, all people. And we've talked about that we are a global denomination, something not every Christian denomination can say. And so it leads us to today and the topic of diversity. You can't be a global church and not acknowledge that diversity is at some level important, for the globe is very diverse. And so today, I thought it would be helpful to see the changing attitude, especially in American culture, toward diversity, so I have done a little bit of research. My first set of research was not very helpful because as I have confessed to you before, I am not into landscaping. I don't enjoy going out in the sun, burning, getting skin cancer, and digging in the dirt. Those are not exciting things for me. But I talk to people who miraculously seem to really enjoy that. And talking about, so you can't just go and buy whatever flower or plant that you like and just stick it here and just water it and it'll be fine? And they're like, no, you have to prepare the space. You have to get it ready. And sometimes you need different soils. Sometimes you have to change the pH, which you're already way out of my realm here. And I said, so, okay, so once you get it ready, then I can just go pick like the prettiest pink plant. And they're like, no, that's not how it works. And I was like, okay, so in order to have a diverse, healthy garden that will last, that will sustain, You have to be very intentional and plan for the diversity. I also did a little research. Alliant International University did an exhaustive study about diversity, and it was so compelling that Scientific American published it in their October 2014 issue. And now I recognize that 2014, in some ways doesn't seem like very long ago, but a lot has happened in our world since 2014, and so some of these things might not be spoken of in the same way, so I am gonna preface that. But the study was about diversity in businesses. That's what it was about, in organizations such as that. So it's not all universally applicable to the church, for we are not a business, we are a family of faith. But they identified four different types of diversity. The first is what they are calling internal. These are the things to which we are born. It might be the color of our skin, our ethnicity, our age. These are things that we can't choose and we can't really change. Our national origin, the country into whom we are born, where we are born, and our mental and physical ability. Some of those things are dictated at our birth and through our development process. The second, though, are things that we can have some autonomy over, that we can change, we can engage. These are referred to as external diversity. We can do this through the cultivation of education. We can do this through how we choose to present ourselves appearance-wise. We can do this by the country or the nation to whom we choose to have citizenship. We can't change where we are born, but you can change where you want to be a citizen. And experience. We can choose to engage in different experiences, which of course becomes more and more crucial the older we get. Then they identified something called organizational diversity. Now again, this was within the business world, but within the organization, there is diversity in function. So what jobs different people have, the place of work, not just where they are in the structure, but where they are physically and geographically located. There is diversity in the pay type. Are they volunteer? Are they staff? And there is seniority, which continues to be a conversation in churches. (laughs) Who has seniority? And then there's the fourth one. And the fourth one, I think, speaks very profoundly to the church. This is what they call worldview. It is what I would call our meta-ethic. It's the standard by which we judge ourselves, and it is the lens through which we look at the world. For some of us, that might be through our political beliefs, it might be our moral compass, our religious and ethical guidelines there, or it may simply be our outlook. But because of all these different forms of diversity, what Alliant International discovered was that rather than creating chaos, or rather than creating a system where it's much more difficult to get things aligned and done, They found that the greater the diversity in a business or an organization, that it had positive effects. They were able to outline how it positively affected the work environment, the financial returns. It overall positively affected the strategy, the direction that the organization, the business chose to go. And here's one that's really astounding, public opinion. The more diverse the organization, the greater the esteem and public opinion of the organization. And here's what's really exciting, is that the diversity that has all these positive effects actually culminated in that it granted the following, varied perspectives. Now, In some ways, we know this, right? How many of you have a mirror at home? We have a mirror because it's a perspective that we cannot see. We are unable to see ourselves because of how our eyes are positioned and so we require a reflective surface to show us what we are showing the world. But it also means that you have perspectives of things that you might not see otherwise. This really hit home for me the last time I was at the optometrist. I am almost disabled in my nearsightedness without my contact lenses or my glasses. And so every time I go, some of you probably have this experience too, and they turn out the lights and they tell you to cover one of your eyes, I immediately feel panicky blind. Because not only have I lost the compensation of both of my eyes, but as soon as I cover one, I lose all of my peripheral vision. And while I can see some this way, what is happening right here in front of my face is completely obscured. And you can reverse it and do the other eye. And so we need both eyes to give us the fullness of our vision, just like more diverse persons allow us to see what we would not otherwise see. And so the perspective is true. They also discovered that those organizations had better problem solving. More perspectives lead to more ideas and how to solve them. If we are all exactly the same and we've never been in this situation before or we don't have the training and the education that someone else has, we might stand here stymied while someone walks in and goes, here's exactly what you're going to do. And so they have discovered that the greater the diversity, the better they are able to resolve issues and solve problems. They also discovered that it extended their audience reach. The more people saw diversity in the organization and the business, the more people outside of it were willing to engage or listen to it, receive what it had to say. And they had higher profits than undiversified businesses. Now, we are not about profits here. We are not about that in the church. But there's something to be said about diversity and effectiveness that the study proved, that the diversity gave greater power to the organization, to be effective, to connect, to fulfill its mission. And as a business, that was to make money, to be profitable. But how might that apply to us as the church? And so Paul was wrestling with this. Diversity is often seen as something that can be a double-edged sword. It looks really good in PR. But it also means that you have to navigate that diversity. You have differing desires and needs. You have different understanding and you have to bridge those gaps. And over the course of church history, Christianity has struggled with whether or not we should pursue uniformity or embrace diversity. And oftentimes, you can go back and look and the tighter the control The more the hierarchy, the episcopacy, the leadership, specifically through the clergy, tried to make everyone the same, the more people slipped through their fingers or the more people broke away. We saw it after the Spanish Inquisition where we were going to punish people even unto torture and death if they did not believe what we thought they should believe. We saw it in this country, in the Puritans. we all going to think alike, read alike, and dress alike. And people broke away from that. And of course, they have different ways of leaving. There's diversity in how you leave a church as well. Some decided to write down 95 complaints and nail them to the door of the church. Others slip away quietly. They leave through the doors of the sanctuary and they never come back. And so, as Methodists... As those people who have implicitly as being a global denomination diversity, perhaps it is not a barrier, but one of our greatest strengths. There are multitudes of ways within the scripture that diversity is affirmed. When God asked Moses to lead God's people out of bondage in Egypt, Moses was not going to be enough by himself. And so God said, I will send to you your brother and your sister. For Moses had a speech impediment, and he was not good at articulation. And so Aaron was better suited for that, and Moses was the prophet, and Aaron was the priest. What you might not know is that there was even greater diversity in Miriam. Miriam was the musical sibling. She was the one that is accredited with singing and bringing the people together with her tambourines and her hymns. In fact, if you pay attention to the book of Exodus, once they get through the parting of the sea, they get to the other side, and the waters close over and prevent the army of Pharaoh's chariots from overtaking them, the people burst into a hymn. And that hymn is often accredited to Miriam. So, diversity is not only in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But we also know that it's in Jesus, it's in all four gospel accounts, for Jesus chose 12 very distinctive and different people. Now certainly there was a strong contingent in there of fishermen, but there were people who had been bureaucrats, like tax collectors. There were people, it's a dog. (laughs) There were people who had lived their lives in other spheres from different socioeconomic contexts. In fact, there was someone who was so radical in his political beliefs, he was labeled as a zealot. And then you had some that had skills that were distinctive, like Judas Iscariot had proven himself capable of handling the money. So he kept the common purse. So Jesus desired diversity in those first apostles. Now certainly they were all Jewish, certainly they were all male, but even within that cohesive unit, they had different roles, education, experience, and ability, and that continued. Even Paul, as he becomes a Christian through his incredible transformative experience with the risen Christ and starts to use his itinerant job traveling around as a tent maker to be the impetus for starting and cultivating Christian communities all over the Roman Empire where he is traveling and working, he comes to find that different churches have different problems and different churches have different makeups. Some of them were overwhelmingly Jewish converts. Some of them were overwhelmingly Gentile. And they asked different questions and they have different needs. And then you have the unenviable position of being a church that was made of both Gentile and Jew and trying to make that work out together as they navigated what it meant to be a Christian. So diversity is part of our narrative, our biblical narrative, and our traditional and historical narrative as Methodists. But why is it important? Why is that? Of all the things that identify Methodism, why would diversity be important? Not just because it makes us effective, not because it makes us better evangelists, not because it makes us better at being the body of Christ, but because there seems to be this reoccurring theme and tie between diversity and being able to move quickly, to respond to the Spirit, if all of us are exactly the same, we become almost locked in to that idea. This is the way we have always done it. This is the way I was taught to do it, and so this is the way we should teach the next generation to do it. And in some ways, there is blessing in that. But if we are so rigid in our thinking and in the way in which we choose to live in the world as Methodists, what we will find is that the tighter we constrain, the more people will walk away. And that has always been the case. Now fortunately, in Methodism, we actually don't have that problem. Now I am born and raised a United Methodist. Uh, Others of you may also be born and raised in the United Methodist Church, but there are a number of people within our larger family of faith here at Crozet who come from other backgrounds. And perhaps you are here because you came from a different denomination that wanted you to conform to an image to which you did not fit or to which you did not feel called. And so you are here because you have lived and experienced what I'm talking about. But for those of us that are here and have always been here, sometimes we take for granted just how open Methodism is. Every now and then, somebody wants to ask me a question, and they'll ask me a question like this. What does the Methodist church believe about heaven? We don't have a doctrine on heaven. We have articles of faith that we inherited through John Wesley as an Anglican priest from the Church of England, and they say nothing about heaven. So when you have someone who says, I think heaven is this, it's possible. If you ask me, I can tell you what the scriptures say. I can tell you what the church has historically said or how Methodists over time have perceived and perpetuated and educated about heaven. But just because your understanding or your belief doesn't fit in with that past trajectory does not mean that you are wrong or that you have to leave. And that's a beautiful thing. When people want to join the church, I don't have to give them a 14-page test What is the church's position on abortion? What is the church's position on salvation? What is the church's position on what happens after you die? Those are not requirements for joining our family of faith. Instead, we focus on just a few crucial things. We ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord, your Savior, and put all your faith in his grace? And that is the central identity. We are a people who are called to have a heart like Jesus Christ. And then I will ask them if they are willing to make us better. Are they coming here to help make us better than we were yesterday without them? By pledging to give their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, and their witness. It's about what you want to bring, not what you know. It's about to whom you belong. Do you have the heart of Christ? Or is it more important that you look like us and dress like us and worship like us? Now, some of you have probably noticed I'm not wearing my typical liturgical gown And for a long time I've kind of resented the Geneva gown, which by the way comes from John Calvin. It's an academic robe, it's not a liturgical garment in the classic sense. But plenty of Protestants wear this. It gets a little sketchy when you're dealing with fire, I can tell you that right now. You kind of want to avoid that. But for a long time at my last church that I served for eight years, I wasn't ordained and so I couldn't wear the stole. And when you're just standing up here in a big billowy black robe, People look at you and think one of two things. Either I look like a judge, which most people don't have positive experiences with, (laughs) or I look like Darth Vader from Star Wars. I look like a Sith Lord, which kids didn't appreciate. They were like, you weren't scary yesterday. Because this robe changes how I appear. Now, some of you are going to say to me, I like that one better. You should wear that one. Well, this one's lined, and I'm not going to wear this all summer. I can tell you that right now. But... It changes what you see. This is the robe that I first bought as I started to pursue ordination. This is the robe that I was licensed in, I was commissioned in, I was ordained in this robe. I have officiated over 100 funerals in this robe and I have officiated over 50 weddings in this robe. This particular robe has a lot of meaning. But it's not the robe, it's the heart Beneath it. It's about what God has given me the ability to do. And if we look back at our lives, what we find is that sometimes the most pinnacle moments of our faith journey didn't come when people tried to make us the same. It's when people accepted that we were different. It's when people said, you know what, you're not like everybody else, and there's still room for you here. Paul was telling the people, Don't get bogged down in judgment. Now, I do want to say a caveat there. I did read that the weak eat only vegetables. And that's not he's not saying that if you're a vegan or a vegetarian that you're a weak person. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that some people at that time were worried that if they ate meat, which most of the time came from religious festivals that were outside of Christianity, that they might be participating in a pagan ritual, and so therefore they just abstained so that they didn't risk it. They weren't weak. They were cautious. <laughs> and so uh, that's, that, I just want to say that we have nothing against vegetarians. You're, you're fine. Paul still loves you. But he gave you so many dichotomies. You have people that eat meat. You have people that won't. You have people that eat and say prayers of blessing over their food. And you have people that fast and abstain from eating and say prayers and blessings that they are able to do so. You have people that look at every day as different, good or bad. You have people that look at all days the same. And they are both at home in the church. He tells them, you don't have to judge. You don't have to decide which one is right or which one is better. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church, he says very clearly at the end of the passage I read to you. Let us, therefore, no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. And for some of us, when you try to build a fence around us or put us in a cage, that is our stumbling block. Now, there is great diversity in clergy, I don't look like Jim Chandler, my predecessor. He didn't wear a robe. That's really our biggest difference, obviously, is that I wear a robe and Jim didn't. For those of you that know Jim, you know that that is not the only difference. I don't think Jim wore eight-inch heels. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But for some clergy, that is their pulpit. And they are fine standing in that space. And there are times where I have to and I stand in that space but if you want me to be at my best, I have to be able to walk because movement helps me to remember. And so if you want me to really consistently be able to give you the sermon I've been working on for the last six months, you're going to have to let me come out of the pulpit. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that someone who stands in the pulpit is good and that someone who doesn't is wrong. It doesn't mean that one way is right. It means that we have to find the way that is most effective for us to communicate what God has placed on our heart. And that is who we are called to be, a people that find that. And every now and then, I talk to somebody, because through the miracle of social media, I'm still kind of connected to people who were adults in the church that I grew up. And every now and then they'll talk about that first sermon I gave when I was 17. And I'm telling you right now, I'm confessing before you, it was not good. It was not good. My dad was there. He's biased. Don't listen to him. And it was not good. I spent the whole time standing there in our church's pulpit. I pretty much vacillated between I'm going to cry and break down in tears and my voice is trembly, and I think I'm actually going to vomit on the pulpit and my parents will be angry. And so my knees were knocking, and I was queasy, and I really didn't enjoy the experience. And then when it was all done, I was like, oh, thank God it's over. And I sat down, and back then I actually wrote my sermons out. I I had an actual manuscript, and people wanted copies of it, probably to, you know, abuse me later with, I don't know. But they had them, and every now and then I get to see one, and I read it, and I'm like, the theology is wonky at best. It's not great theology, I would never submit that sermon to the Board of Ordained Ministry as my theology or my paper for the practice of ministry. That is not who I would like to be. But even, that actually that's probably the worst sermon I've ever given, I'll be honest with you. That is probably the worst sermon I have ever given, hands down. But because of Methodism and the willingness to embrace the diversity of having a 17-year-old high school senior preach, that horrible sermon was the gateway to today. And those people not only endured that sermon, but they looked beyond it to say, maybe you do have a call to ministry, and maybe we're not going to let you say no. Maybe we will encourage you. And because of someone seeing my distinctiveness and diversity as a possible blessing, throughout my ministerial journey, I have been affirmed instead of told no. And, there, and I don't look like most clergy. I mean, even in a room full of clergy, you can generally pick me out. It's not that hard to do. Sometimes they give me a wide berth, as a matter of fact, so you can really tell. But we don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to be the same. And when my my time with you is over and I leave, someone new will come here. And someone new will love you and guide you and walk with you. And you're going to need somebody new by then. You're going to want somebody new. And God will give it to you. And that diversity is what will make you stronger. It will make you better. Because they will see things to which I am blind. And they will come with gifts that I don't have. You might get somebody that actually loves gardening. You might get somebody that's like, you know what, my spiritual gifts are actually outdoors and in the mission field. Me, I like air conditioning and plumbing. So it's different. You will have diversity. And because of that, God will say and do things with you that we would never have done forever in a million years. And that is a good and joyful thing. You are not all the same. You are a rainbow. Some of you are very bright and vibrant. You are those oranges and golds. Some of us are very red and feisty. Some of us bring that calm, cool shade of blue. And then you have those wonderful people that hold us firm in the center with that life-giving green. And then you have other people who, because of the way that they have experienced life and the things that have happened to them, they keep us grounded in the need to find ways to be reconciled. They keep us grounded in the need to repent during Lent and to find ways for us to be better than we were last Easter, and that's what violet stands for. We are a rainbow of people. And every one of you makes us better. And I have never expected all of you to be the same. I don't want you to be the same. I don't want everybody to be like me. And I've never really wanted to be like everybody else. But in the church, we all have a place. And maybe we think diversity doesn't matter. Maybe we think, you know what, it's a passing phase. Society's kind of picked it up and run with it. Which i got to tell you, as clergy, there is nothing more frustrating and honestly angering than to have secular society and politics co-opt our words. Drives me nuts. But I will tell you, it is my belief, after reading not just Paul, but he quotes Isaiah, and I went back and read Isaiah, that until every seat and every church is filled, that we have a duty to make space for somebody to be there. That God loves and knows somebody who belongs right here. And the church has not prepared for that diversity, historically, because how many of us were raised to believe, you know what, God will bring them. God will bring them, we just have to sit here and be ready. Oh no, I'm in the church because my parents made me go to church. They made me. I didn't wake up on Sunday morning like, yay, I'm 16, let's go. That didn't happen. They made me go. And they made me sit right here. And then they made me be an acolyte. And you know what? Sometimes when you compel people to do things, that is God bringing them here. That is God filling those seats. And that is who we are called to be. A people who remove the hindrances, who... Remove the obstacles and the stumbling blocks. But don't remove the impetus. It is important for you to be here. It is vital that you join us. You make us better. And if you don't come, then there's not just a gaping hole in our membership roles. There's not just an emptiness in the pew. There is an emptiness in our heart as the people of God. And if you've ever had someone in your family or your circle of friends with whom you have been estranged then you know what it feels like to have a hole in your heart and not only do we as the body of Christ have a hole in our heart but God knows who is missing and there's a hole in God's heart waiting for the rest of us to figure out that they should be here and so as we continue to move forward as our days go on whether you think they're good or bad or all even as time will march forward and eventually we will have another general conference in the united methodist church and eventually somebody will call the question on the future of our denomination And when that day is finally scheduled, I can tell you, you will feel the anxiety and the fear rise. It will be tangible. You will be able to cut it with a knife. But the response of God's people is, who are we? And what is important to us? That will always guide us on the right path. That is why we have spent a solid month talking about what is so wonderful about Methodism because no amount of denominational divorce or fracture in a system can rob us of our grace, can deny us the fulfillment of our purpose as the people called Methodists, or can change the fact that we recognize that we are a global body, that that diversity is our greatest strength and gift to the world. So may that guide and guard us. May it give us hope. And just maybe the God-given answer to the struggle that Methodists have been in for quite a few decades now will be from someone that we didn't expect and we didn't even know was paying attention. But God's spirit is not hindered by human expectations. And one day, people will look back, and they will look at this time, and they will wonder, what was it that made the difference? And it will be our hearts. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast.